Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Baute Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to this episode of the i3 Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Grioli, otherwise known as the editor of Market Fox. And with me today, I have a very special guest. He is an accomplished investor and an academic. We'll ask him whether he considers himself to be more of an academic or an investor. I'm sure we'll get an interesting answer. As always, we have Professor Jack Gray. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. In all of our episodes, we like to start in chronological order and go right back to the beginning. So we'll do the same thing with you. How did you get started as an investor, Jack? Uh, I was a professor of mathematics for 20 years. And uh, at the age of 44, uh, this was when quants on Wall Street just started. So 88, roughly. And I was a bit dissatisfied. I loved being an academic, research and teaching and consulting. But I was a bit pissed off at various things, in particular the way the universities were becoming, even in those days, uh, sausage machines driven by business as a business rather than as a source of true intellect. Um, and I, they didn't value teaching and they still don't, and I love teaching. And at that time, I got approached by a few people you, you understand quant, you, you're interested in doing some work on it. And so I'd, I looked at some brokers and that looked a bit scary and AMP looked a bit safe. And so I decided to take the plunge at that age and go and join a little quant group in AMP Investments. So what, was the, what kind of early quant work were you doing at AMP? Uh, number one, I was trying to learn what a bond was. Uh, number two was trying to learn what a share was. Uh, I was literally started. I went from being an expert one day in various areas to being a complete and utter novice the next day. And so a lot of the time was taken up with me learning, which was an incredibly painful experience at any age, but particularly at that age. Was that, was that a, so it sounds like it was confronting to have totally. to go through that. Totally. How long did it take you before you felt you'd come to grips with it? Uh, I still haven't. <laughs> no, it's true. One of the things you learn as an academic is that the infinite abyss of ignorance always dominates the tiny, infinitesimal slither of knowledge that you have. And I brought that with me. The, what I don't know is always much more interesting than what I think I do know. So in a way, never. However, I would say two, three years before I was able to seriously contribute to anything within the investment area, a couple of years at least. Yeah. And that was very painful, And but it's a very good experience for anyone to go through. If you're dealing with uh, clients, 
whether you're a trustee or an advisor and you're dealing with people who may well be very smart but have zero knowledge about investing, going through it yourself and trying to learn is a very sobering process that makes you much more humble and I think teaches you much how to communicate better. So there's a a lot in that response. I just want to go back to what you said about the early quant work. What were some of the Hmm. early early strategies that you built? I didn't answer that question. (laughs) I'm sorry for that. (laughs) The old political thing of always answer the second question and then they'll forget the first one. (laughs) The the first ones were uh, optimizers of various types because they were relatively new. Uh, I worked on an, an asset liability optimizer for defined benefit schemes. We had a joint venture with some with a, with Wilshire in uh, in California. So Australianizing their model and understanding it, uh, some option pricing uh, came into it. Um, optimize asset liability studies, uh, but generally bringing bringing a sort of way of thinking into the business that was more a quant way of thinking. The, the, you don't really need much mathematics in investing to be an investor. You need a comfort in dealing with graphs, charts, a little bit of statistics, interpretation, all of that stuff, which for instance, Jeremy does terrifically. You need a sense of, for instance, when something's large and when something's small. That's not easy to get to. That's often the hallmark of an expert. And that sounds trivial and easy, and the level of mathematics involved in it is pretty low, but it's a true a truism in most areas of intellect that to understand and deal with something at a low level, you've really got to know it at a high level. Mm-hmm. And that's really the value that you bring, the way of understand. For instance, I remember a very early uh, example of that where and it wasn't this example, but it was the same context. Someone was saying uh, about the Middle Ages that uh, life expectancy, as we know, was around 30-ish. And in that context, someone said, so you wouldn't expect to find many people over 30. And I said, no, that's not true. Life expectancy was over 30, but almost all the deaths occurred in the first five years. So the conditional life expectancy, conditional on surviving the first five years, was more like 45. That is something that you see over and over again, and that seems to be a rather hard thing for a lot of people to grab hold of. Interpreting graphs and charts, which is second nature to me, I learned how difficult that can be for people. Mm -hmm. Don't know how to read them. You use a log graph, which is the right way to show most data. And people think you're trying to pull the wool over their over their eyes, and so we don't use log graphs. Um, the idiocy of quoting data to two decimal places. That's all we know. All that does is make it harder to read. There's a ton of research showing that that you show people four figures, thirty six point five six, and that's much harder to read and absorb than thirty six, and yet that gets the message across. So all of those things uh, were really what I was doing. The other stuff was intellectually more interesting, and I did some work on optimizers uh, that were not were not they were below with using not just volatility but uh, below some target volatility, so downside volatility. 
And that mathematically was an interesting idea because the, the, the function you were optimizing wasn't convex. And so you often had local maxima that weren't global maxima. And that, that was quite a challenge. Ended up really giving us nothing new, which is often the case. That's, you know, that's the nature of research. When you say it gave you nothing new, what do you mean? Exactly? No new insights into the way how you could structure a portfolio, assuming you've got five or six asset classes and you feed, you, you pretend you know what the uh, all the covariances are and everything else and you feed it into an optimizer and it gives you the answer. And let's even take out the liquidity issues so that you and you, you are aware of corner solutions and you get rid of them. And the belief was that people, as Markowitz said in his very first book, that volatility is a, is a reasonable proxy, but really people are more concerned about volatility downside. And if that's the case, that should be reflected in the market. And when we ran the model on the data, we didn't find any evidence of that that people didn't seem to worry. And prospect theory sort of tells you that maybe they worry about volatility on both sides because they anchor onto something on the upside. Now, it could have been at the time, this was 1990, uh, the use of derivatives was not as extensive as now. Various option strategies that protect on the downside probably weren't as, as uh, common and maybe even sophisticated investors weren't that clear about what to do to protect the downside. So maybe now it might show something different. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I can empathize greatly with your comments about uh, non-investors getting confused by graphs and tables. Uh, that's something that I found uh, over and over again in my career is that people who aren't uh, used to dealing with graphs often struggle to interpret yeah, them. And it was always a, a difficulty because you would prepare papers ahead of meetings often a week mm -hmm. or two before the meeting and you weren't there obviously mm -hmm. to help them interpret the graph as they're reading the paper. So they would often come into the meeting with the exact opposite mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> conclusion of what you were yeah. trying to show. So not only were you in a sense trying to explain in the meeting, but you are also trying to overcome some of the, uh, the yeah. wrong conclusions yeah, yeah. that they'd yeah. gotten yeah. confused with. Yeah, and lots of uh, trustee boards, for instance. The trustees may well be highly intelligent. They may, may well even be experts in all sorts of areas. That doesn't mean they can read graphs. I've got a friend who's a judge, and she is as smart as a whip, and she asked me to explain something about super, and as soon as I got to any data or any graph, her eyes just glazed over. Do, do you, um, have you looked at any of the thoughts around uh, naturalistic decision-making and the work of uh, Gerd Gigerenza? He argues, um, for example, that a lot of the research in behavioral finance, which points to the conclusion that we're all biased and we use heuristics, is actually measuring the wrong thing. His argument is that we all look biased because, as you just mentioned in the case of your friend, the judge, we, we make mistakes because we don't understand naive probabilities. Oh, true. And if you explain it in a different true. way, we get true. it straight away. 
probability is, is first of all, on graphs. Uh, if you read one of the many reasons I, I love, if not at the obsessed by history, is that there are lessons there. And if you, as a teacher of mathematics, it was clear that students often learn in a sort of roughly historical order. So graphs, being able to draw a, a line graph of what the S&P has done over the last five years, to us, trivial, absolutely simple. It's not till the 13th century that anyone feels comfortable enough to do that. That is a very long time, and, and people struggled with it. And that tells you that it's a really difficult concept. When you get to probability, professional statisticians get struck by probabilistic arguments. It seems to be quite an unnatural way for our brain to think. We think in terms more of certainty. We think in terms of Aristotelian uh, everything either is or isn't. And the Eastern philosophy allows you to say things are and aren't at the same time. That's not quite probabilistic, but it's got a flexibility that you need. Most people can't handle probability. They, they really, and that, and I'm talking about professional statisticians too. It is a deep and difficult issue to come to terms with. Mm -hmm. That's any tips on how we can uh, improve our probabilistic decision making? Uh, not really. The, the, certainly, keep the technical stuff out of it, and and always try to explain things using probability in as simple a way. It's Einstein's thing. B is everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. And that's the, the sting in the tail there is the difficulty of all teaching, of trying to get that across. Coin tossing has got some... There's a fair bit in that that you can use, and people at least feel comfortable with tossing a coin. Uh, but even there, the, you know, when you look at the actual... Uh, analysis of coin tossing it's quite odd you know it's got sinusoidal uh, things that you wouldn't expect it's mm -hmm. it's counterintuitive mm -hmm. I think it is the I'm told that in Latin there is no word for probability they just didn't think that way mm -hmm. things either are or are not and the whole of investment you've got to be able to understand that that's not the way it is <laughs> that's right it's a, it's a challenge for all of us yeah. so yeah Going back to your early days at AMP, uh, who do you think were your your early influences and mentors as you started in there was, investing? There was one guy there that he was an actuary, with all the downsides that that brings, because <laughs> he was he was very good, but he was uh, being an actuary. He, the way he approached things, I remember asking him something, and I can't even remember what it was, and it could have been trivial, it doesn't matter. And he said, I'll explain that to you once, I'll explain it twice, but I'll never explain anything three times. Now, there is the idiocy of an actuary. What if it takes me seven times to un understand it? Where's this random three come from? And that's a complete lack of understanding and empathy of the way people learn of the struggle but he was very good he he there was one incident where i finally as all people who learning who learn do they finally see it well if you're lucky mm -hmm. if you're lucky and i can't remember what it was but it was something relatively const relatively concrete and constrained 
And finally, one of these eureka moments. And, and I rushed into his office and I said, look, I finally understood it. What, this is how it should be explained. Why didn't anyone ever explain it to me like that? And he, being obsessive, pulled open his drawer and took out his notebook and he turned back to wherever it was and he pointed to, see that? That's where I explained it to you like that. And he had. And when I looked back, there was a book I was reading that explained it like that. I wasn't ready to receive that. Mm-hmm. So there's no, it's again another lesson about teaching, and that means communication with everybody, is that you, you have to be at a point both temperamentally and emotionally, psychologically and intellectually, to actually receive explanations. And it's the same with graphs. And if you're not, you can explain things as clearly as crystal, and it goes right through your head and comes out the other side. So he was, uh, he was very important to me because I needed somebody to help me with things. And most other people were not. Most most people in in business, in fact, most people don't give enough of themselves to help explain things to people. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people hold back? I think particularly in this industry uh, where they tend to be driven by money and and fame and glory and success, they just don't have time. I think it's it's also going back to your libertarian thing. It's a very libertarian culture as, as is finance. Mm-hmm. I'll look after me and that's it. And to give time means that people probably think of it this way. If I have to give you time, it means I'm not doing something else mm-hmm. that might get me a bonus or something. And that's yet cool. that's what you need. That's You need that for chairman. You need chairs of boards, for instance, to be able to give them themselves. The good ones do. Mm-hmm. And he was one who did. Most others didn't. Mm-hmm. So cast your mind back. What do you know now that you wish you had known? You wish Jack Gray from 2018 had told you, had told Jack Gray back in 1990. Um, Don't do it. Change your mind. No, 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 Probably because there was an ego driving it and, of course, I was never going to fail, of course. It was a real risk given that I had kids and house and all the rest of it. It was truly a risk. Uh, No, I think... I I don't think the... The answer is really, I think, nothing because had I... One, for the reason I just said... Had the things I know now been explained to me then, it probably would have passed right through, like a like a, a Higgs boson passing through your head. Mm-hmm. But also, had too much been given to me too early, I wouldn't have gone through the pain of learning. And that was absolutely important to do that. That, that helped make me, uh, give me much deeper understanding and made me much more aware of other people's difficulties and hence I hope being able to communicate better. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back I think uh, at the time we the group I was in because it was a quant group was very much in favour of passive investing, index investing on the grounds that they sort of bought the uh, efficient market hypothesis 
they, they were critical of it, but they bought it. And I, not knowing anything, fell in line and bought that. And it was beautiful. You know, I, as a mathematician, that whole area of efficient markets and, uh, and of uh, general equilibrium, of Arrow de Brew and so on, is just magnificent stuff. Mm. And that attracted me, of course, but that was the wrong thing to be attracted to. That was not that was that was not making me into a better investor at all. But they and we were in a difficult position because the company was very active, and yet it had this little group here. Uh, it was never going to last because they really believed in passive. I think the main now thinking about it, there is one thing, and the one thing that I would have should have been more aware of and told more of was the level of understanding and the level of ignorance that these experts had. I came in, coming in from the outside into a brand new environment. You sort of assume, I don't think I would ever have said it, but you assume these people who've been at it for 20 years, they've got all the answers. A bit like Kim Beasley. When he first came to Canberra, he said that he assumed there was someone who had all the answers. And he went around all parties and the public service. And then he realised that nobody knows what the questions are. And I think that was where I was. This was at a time when currency management was brand new. I assumed that dealing with currency forwards and so on, that everybody understood that. And they didn't. I assumed that everybody understood all the intricacies of optimization. They didn't. And of, uh, of Black Shoals. And they didn't. They projected as if they did, because, of course, we all do that. I don't think that was intentional. But had somebody sat me down and said, we are pretty ignorant, and here's why, and kept reminding me, I think that could have been beneficial. That's one thing they could have done. Uh, do I do that to new people coming in? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say I try. No, I guess it's a good reminder for us all to think about the limits of our yeah. our knowledge and yeah. Uh, yeah. what we don't know is often more important. And as you oh. say, it's sometimes it's not about the answers as much as the questions. Yeah. Just having yeah. the right questions yeah. and keep, yeah. and keep on digging. Yeah. Yeah. So you moved on from AMP to work at uh, oh, Sunsuper yeah. and at no, GMO. No, first GMO. At GMO. So, so tell us how that happened. Um... I knew the people at GMO here in Sydney, uh, Ron Bird particularly, who I still work with. And uh, from that, I think Jeremy read some of my articles, which was rare because he doesn't read what other people write as a rule. It's not totally true. Um, and they said, why don't, I think somebody, wasn't Jeremy, one of them rang me up and said, are you interested in running the Sydney office? Which was already being run by Ron anyway, and Graham and John McKinnon. I said, no, uh, if I'm going to move from a big AMP uh, to a tiny office, no. And they said, and Jeremy said, well, why don't you come to Boston? So I went over to Boston for two or three times and went through the awful process and um, awful <laughs> oh yeah it's it's just interviewed in uh, okay. unstructured interviews with a hundred people uh, three uh, three times mm -hmm. uh, what they're getting out of that I don't know a anyway that, where do you see yourself in 10 years that sort of thing 
Mm, yeah, I think some ask that, <laughs> and the answer, or when, what do you see yourself doing when you grow up? And I, my answer is, I hope I never grow up. I've got no idea what I'm doing. I've never had a plan of what I'm doing. Never. I, I know there are people who do that. Uh, one of the things that I've I saw in academia and in business, not not uh, not the most common thing, but enough to see it and and comment on it is that people who've got very definite goals, I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm six and I'm going to be a full professor by the time I'm eight and the CEO by the time I'm 10, all of that. What can happen is a lot of those people get there and then what? Because they don't have a vision. Their only vision is this self of getting to a position. I've never had that. I've never been interested in status or positions or... In fact, one of the reasons I left AMP is the new guy who came in wanted me to be his number two. And that told me the guy's got bad judgment. I am not the sort of person you want. It's true. <laughs> you know, I know that, and he didn't. I'm not, I don't want to be in that position. I think if anything, if I've had any particular dreams and ambitions, they've been very amorphous ones. I want to understand the world out there, everything physics, history, everything, and I understand understand the world in here. Mm -hmm. I've probably got a better understanding of out there than in here. And that's that's it. So GMO was good. No, GMO was is dysfunctional, uh, to which Jeremy would say, yeah, it's the right sort of dysfunctionality. And there's a bit of truth in that. Uh, and I say to people, all organisations are dysfunctional like all families, and the trick is find an organisation whose dysfunction complements yours, and then you'll probably be pretty happy. And GMO was like that for me. Reminds me a bit of the, the line from Rocky where uh, Rocky says to Adrian, I got gaps, you got gaps? Right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. So while you're at GMO, what were the sort of things you were working on there? Presumably you passed the three interviews. I did, I did, yeah. Uh, a lot of it was mainly asset allocation. I ended up being joint uh, director of that with with uh, Ben Inca. And, but along the way, it was a sort of broad, you know, in Aussie rules. Do you play or follow Aussie rules? Not closely, no, anyway. but I live in Melbourne, so okay. you can't get so, away from it. All right. There's a role, a rover, a yes. rover. It's allowed to sort of wander around. And yeah. I was given that sort of role to poke my head in various areas, uh, be Jeremy's sounding board. So sort of number, in a way, in a way, Jeremy's handbag in many, in many ways. And that was fine. He's mm -hmm. quite happy doing that. Uh, you know, we once went, were invited to talk, he was, to Harvard MBA students. And I went along, I was the sort of warm-up. Uh, and, and that's all, you know, if you're a rock band and and you're there with warming up before Mick Jagger, that's not a bad role to have. That's right. A lot of people would kill for that. Yeah, yeah. And another role was to try to... Uh, Jeremy was very hard to, to disagree with Jeremy, and yet it's so important. And everyone at the firm, and I think I was one, all believed that if you ask them, they'd say, oh, I stand up to Jeremy. And everyone else says, nah, you never stand up to Jeremy. And that was that was a difficult thing to do. 
because he is very smart and very knowledgeable and very persuasive. So that was that was part of the challenge of doing that. Uh, but when he wanted to talk about things, investment or other things that was there, looking at some of the quant models, uh, various aspects of them, uh, but mainly asset allocation, bigger issues, mm-hmm. and the nature of the business too. So your time in Boston's up. You come back to Australia to work with... Well, I, the only reason we came back, I think, was... Uh, there were two reasons. One was Deborah's turn. She'd given me nearly six years and she wanted to do things, so it was my turn. And the other was I didn't want the kids to grow up and to be stuck in America. Uh, it's a failed state and it's failing even more and its values are wrong. Boston was a bit different. The Northwest and the Northeast are a bit different. Mm-hmm. But it's a failed state. They don't, I didn't want them. And Sam, our youngest son, had just finished high school. And if he went to college there, that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. So there were two reasons to come back. And I didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, so I'd, I didn't mind. And then I was approached by Sun Super to be their first CIO, to which I wasn't suited. Mm-hmm. What do you think the mismatch was between you and... A lot of reporting, unnecessary reporting. Uh, Backward-looking reporting. Backward-looking reporting. (laughs) Obsession about performance. Um, Peers? Or was it it, it that bad back then? Not as bad, but it was there already, Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Uh, It was very... And then Queensland, not that I was in Queensland, but the Queensland mafia is always on you in that job. Somebody's got a new deal. You should put it in your portfolio, that sort of stuff. And so the whole structure, I loved Don, working with Don, he was terrific. Mm-hmm. But that sort of thing I didn't like. And I, I made a mistake. I was, I didn't want to build an empire, so I only had one person working with me and I, I did need more. Mm-hmm. I did, and I refused to do that because I'd seen at AMP, you've got a problem, you build an empire. And I so I overreacted the other way. So through this journey, you started out as a professor, working in quant, working with GMO, superannuation funds. If I was to ask you today, do you consider yourself to be a practitioner or an academic? Much more a practitioner. Much more. But, but a mix, a mix. And why do you lean more towards a practitioner side? Because in this, in finance, like all, the academic life is about publishing papers in respected journals uh, and that's the aim and that means a lot of it is quite irrelevant if not misleading to practitioners as a practitioner uh, most of the issues are outside the usual domain of the academics certainly here anyway the behavioral academics are a bit different but most of it is really, look. I look at the Financial Analyst Journal and for my sort of investing, which is more the asset allocation, it's manager selection, it's portfolio, multi-manager portfolio construction, there's very little in that in the Financial Analyst Journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the others, journal portfolio management, occasionally there is, but most of it is written for other academics and it doesn't 
you know, but there are some people to whom it's probably important, but for me it's not. A lot of back tests being passed off as well, academic I mean, results as yeah, well by fund managers. Yeah, and, that, and that's true in all areas. There's a paper by a, a Greek uh, medical researcher by the name of Ioannidis, whose the, the title was Why All Research Results Are False. And he goes through how this, the academic world does not value uh, looking back and retesting, confirming. They just don't do that. And the statistical tests in our business are so weak, all the p-hacking and so on, and the papers by Harvey and others that show that if you use t bigger than three, you wipe out almost all of them, and that's not asking for terribly much. Uh, in fact, there's a paper I've got where they actually went, six of them, went back and back-tested anomalies. And first of all, they found that very few of them reappear when you test them again. Uh, of those that do, there were roughly 1,500, 500 they tested. Of those that do, uh, 15% pass the level of significance of T bigger than 3. And of those 15%, uh, over half uh, the level of outperformance you got was badly overstated in the original papers. Mm -hmm. So it's economically insignificant. So here's this business where people are producing these things. And it's hard. Look, it's, it's tough. I, when I was building uh, models of uh, investing, I was much more at peace when they were clearly failing. Because then there's something to do. When they look like they're working, that's terrifying. Because you don't know what you've got. You could you know, The usual luck and skill, you've got no idea. And it's much, much more peaceful. You can go to sleep at night when the thing is obviously wrong. When it's right, you, if you've got integrity, you are really worried. There was one at GMO we looked at. It wasn't one that I'd built, but we looked at it for... We kept watching it, so we were simulating it. Yeah. And it was partly Jeremy's idea. And this, this factor just kept going up and up and up and up and... The more up it went, the more worried we were because it just looked too good. Mm. And we watched it for nearly two years. And then we put some of our own money in and immediately, of course. Should we have put it in earlier? But there's the really tough judgment questions. As a matter of integrity, I think, no, I'd much rather miss out on making that money of two years of a run than have it wrong. It turned out to be largely noise. It's it's very interesting, and I can see that you're alluding to this in your response about some of these factors. That there's a lot of subjective decision making in the in this factor mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. now, which factors to test? How long to mm -hmm. run them? In your case, the example: how long to run them as a as a paper portfolio mm -hmm. before committing real money, how much to commit. There's a lot of decision-making. And mm -hmm. what I see happen a lot is that a lot of this research gets passed off as being entirely objective, evidence-based, mm -hmm. uh, you know, emotionless, and it's not. It's not. And, and interestingly, the quants, of course, are often the worst of those because they, their usual argument is we've, we're objective. We've, you know, it's just the data. Well, if they understand anything about the philosophy of science, they know how wrong that is. Even the selection of data has got a bias. 
There's, there's biases in everything. Once you decide to use that lump of data, you've made a decision that biases what you're doing, clearly. But even beyond that, the models you build. All right, there's no, they made at GMO, there was no subjective judgment in the actual stock. Well, there was a bit when you came to trade, but by and large, whether it was in or out and what weight it had was not up to us, it was up to the model. So is it objective? No, because people don't fall in love with the stock, but they fall in love with their model. And you see that all the time. It's exactly the same bias. So, yeah, you can never take the subjective judgment out of it. I don't know why you'd want to. That's what we are. And you can't separate those two. We know from the neurological studies that you can't you can't be to totally and utterly analytic and cognitive. It's not as if the brain's got one cognitive bit and another emotional or affect bit. They work together. And all decision making has to be like that. In fact, if you if if it was not like that, you would never make a decision and there are case studies of that. People who've had whatever part of their brain affected, uh, what tie will I wear today? They can spend days looking, they've got six ties and which will go with this and running an optimizer. They'll never make a decision. <laughs> Whereas the real human, and that's Herbert Simon talked about that in his Nobel Prize winning talk about the aim should be to satisfy, not to optimize. Mm. And that's much more effective. That's the way I try to think. And that means the mathematical and the analytic side is not useless, but it's downplayed. I think the, the most interesting story uh, study I saw along those lines was with some brain injury patients that were playing a gambling game with a loaded deck. And the interesting thing was the rational part of their brain was working. So within a few hands of the game, they could see that the, the deck was loaded. Mm -hmm. And yet, because the emotional response was impaired, they literally kept gambling until they had no money left, even though they were cognizant and answering and, yeah. and letting people know that they could see that the deck was actually stacked yeah. against them. They just kept playing. It can work the other way too. There's Damasio is a neurologist who does some interesting experiments. And in one of those, he's got people who's, who've got slight brain damage in the armadillo. I never know how to pronounce it, deep in the limbic brain that's to do with fear and flight and he plays the coin tossing game with them and even though they know it's an unbiased coin most people uh, if they've lost four times in a row most people you. <laughs> you know, they pull out because you know they've had four heads in a row it must be a tail now very rational people do that yeah. and and so they miss out because they're not prepared to take losses. And these people, because they're a little less scared of things, actually are prepared to take a bit of loss. And they end up after 20 rounds way ahead of the others mm -hmm. just by controlling that little bit of fear. Mm -hmm. And we can't control it. You need to have brain damage to do it. Mm -hmm. So again, it's all, it's all about... So that's why I've sort of drifted away from the quant because it doesn't capture what investment decision-making really is about. Okay. Well, how do you capture investment decision-making? I've got to ask well, the question yeah, now. Yeah, well, it's a, I think it's more about temperament uh, than, than anything else. It's, it's, I wrote a paper once on called uh, What Sort of People Do You Want Managing Your Money? And that's not how intelligent they are. It was based on, on Buffett. 
and you've always got to mention Buffett because you get instant preferability. Buffett's insight <laughs> that uh, he's got a trade, and the trade is, uh, first of all, he says high IQ is not well correlated with investment success. And I think that's true. You obviously need some level of IQ, but you probably don't need 140. So he says, if you use the trade, if you've got an IQ of 140, you give him 20 of your IQ points, he'll give you a better temperament. That's the swap. And he's, he's right. It's about temperament. It's about the ability to be... It's all those things we've been talking about, the ability to be patient, to know when to be patient and when not to be, to be patiently impatient. You know, how long do you wait and how long do you not wait? These are judgmental things. I, I, the best analogy I've got is, is with, a, with a marriage. So if you think of long-term investing and marriages, they're both, in principle at least, about long-term benefits, in principle. Practice doesn't matter much. Mm. On marriages, we get about 50% right, maybe 55 That's about what we get right in investing too. Mm -hmm. So there's some parallels there. Uh, if the, so you've now got two choices. We don't have a three-year performance you evaluation period in No, we do don't. No. We don't. Luckily, we don't. <laughs> Luckily, we don't. We have an informal one. Or a quarterly. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's an interesting point in that. So in big decisions in life, you don't do that. You assess things sometimes, occasionally. Uh, in marriage, the, so some people think long-term investing is buy and hold, and it can't be that. Uh, you've got to, at times, look at things and better understand them and sometimes take action. And it's the same in a marriage. If your marriage is just buy and hold and you stay in it and you never question it, even when a crisis happens, it's going to be rotten. There are times when you've got to. Typical one is when your partner has an affair. So the investment is impaired. Do you put more equity in? Do you abandon it and leave it? Well, the questions are exactly the same with investing. So is there a, a particular time when you should do that? If you never assess it, it'll be awful. On the other hand, if you assess it every quarter, you're never going to stay. You'll never you'll be happy. Never, <laughs> never. And there's, that's really the answer. So don't... If you really want to assess something, pick random times. Well, I think the difference is that in the case of a marriage, you're not having to report the result to anybody you're else. You're not. That's and I think true. that frees you up to think it that does. way. It does. But I think once you enter into a world where you're now an intermediary that's trying to justify why you should continue to be an intermediary, that changes the dynamic a little bit. It does. That's the agency problem and that the massive... Ron Bird and I have written on the agency problem and the costs, direct and indirect, in this in the super industry that, of course, nobody wants to hear about because they're all agents. We're all agents. There's nothing wrong with being an agent unless you're extracting some sort of value out of the system for that. But there's a, a lesson there. Don't look at... The, the more we know from behaviour stuff, the more you look at something, the more likely you are to do something and, therefore, the more likely you are to get it wrong. I don't look at my super account. When was the last time you checked your balance? I never do. You never do? I never do. It comes at the end of the year when it... Uh, no, I never do. What for? What am I going to do? So it's fallen down. February, all right. It went down in February. I, I don't know, but I assume it did. It went, so what am I going to do? 
It's, this whole industry is geared towards making people do things. And yet, all the evidence is the best thing is often to do nothing. Now, when you should do nothing and when you shouldn't is the judgment call. But I, what I try to practice is thoughtful inertia. Inertia's got a hell of a lot to be said for in this business. Right. Just doing nothing. And people can't do that. They're all... The system tell... You know, why, why does anyone care what the ASX did today? Mm. For one reason, number one, you've got no idea. You want them, I can make up a bullshit story. It's all post hoc. Of course. You know, the market went up. Oh, yeah, there were more buyers than sellers. Oh, no, it went down. Oh, well, there's a lot of profit taking. I mean, it's just bullshit. It's random crap. And yet, why does anyone look at it? I work with the guys. Oh, well, what did the market do to that? A number of times I've told him I'm zero. I have negative interest in that. And yet, it's, it's almost an obsession to know. And what am I going to do? And that's the aim of having what the stock market did today or what gold price did. The purpose of that, and it's not benign, it's malignant, is to make you anxious so that you will do something. That's the nature of the business. Mm -hmm. So you've got to fight that. But I, I don't put all of the blame on the business. Obviously, the, the business shoulders a lot of the blame, but how do you, in, in the case of somebody who is an intermediary, how do you get paid for helping people to do nothing? And I'll, I'll explain what I mean with an example. So people often ask me, uh, you know, why don't you become a private wealth advisor or a financial planner or something like that where you can help people? And the example I give them is, is this. I say to them, if you were feeling ill and your doctor thought you may have cancer and he sent you off for tests and those tests came back and uh, it cost you several thousand dollars for the testing because they're not covered by Medicare. The tests come back and you're clear. Are you going to be upset at all that you've just paid several thousand dollars for no result? No, you're going to be no. absolutely ecstatic. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you were to go to a private wealth advisor and give him your financials and your, your balance sheet, your cash flow, explain your goals, talk to him about your investments, and at the end of that process, he says, well, I think you're well positioned, everything's okay, that'll be $3,000. You will go absolutely apoplectic. And I, that's the I difference. I personally wouldn't. I think that's probably money well spent. But most Personally. people don't think that way. And it's very hard to make a business out of helping people to do nothing. So. Sure it is. But there are some like that. Mm -hmm. There are some people. That's a question of integrity. It really is. Consultants are like that. When was the last time a consultant, an industry fund swapped consultants or a super fund, and the consultants came in and said, this looks pretty good. <laughs> and and that's the agency cost. You blame the other guys for all yeah, the mistakes. Yeah, and that's then. the agency yeah. cost of doing it. McKinsey makes a, a mozzarella out of doing that. Uh, they oh you've got to you've got to diversify. Uh, three years later, oh no, conglomerates don't work. You've got to split it up. And there's a lot of cynicism there that that doesn't have to be there. Mm -hmm. Somebody. So how do we make it better? By standing up and talking about it by writing about it, by finding people who think similarly. Uh, I'm glad to see that First Super down in Melbourne no longer puts its uh, data into Chant West or other places. 
I was been preaching that to Bill Watson and others for a long, long time. Maybe that got through. Uh, that's what you can do. The Q Super started it and say, this is garbage. And you've got to accept the fact that sometimes you do nothing. And that's true in surgery too. I would much rather have a surgeon, even when I've got, and I do, I've got uh, some mild prostate cancer. So you could have it taken out. And this surgeon's saying, no, it's probably better to leave it in. It doesn't seem to be growing quickly. Monitor it once a year or something with a, a test that is really pretty useless, as he says. Uh, but that's what we'll do. I'm, am I paying for that? Yeah. I'm paying for the privilege of doing fuck all. And, <laughs> and that, there is an enormous lesson in that in investing. Yeah. And you've got to have integrity to say that. You know, it's the, it's the same as crap with the Royal Commission. Uh, if you take away the commissions from people, from the brokers, real estate brokers, uh, they will then have a disincentive for having a longer term uh, period for the, for the uh, mortgage. Well, that sort of says something about them, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. They should be giving quality advice regardless of their incentives. Mm -hmm. That's called integrity. And this we follow the American model where that doesn't mean anything. Instead of following the German model and the Scandinavian model where integrity is front and centre. Mm -hmm. And that's the answer now. Ethics, morality, integrity, all those things, and they're pretty hard to, in this industry, there are people like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you've given us uh, a lot to think about with that response, about how we can move finance forward and investment, make it uh, a positive contributor to society, actually help people with their finance yeah. needs. Yeah. Um, even if that help means that we stop them from doing things rather than... Particularly if it stops them doing things. Mm -hmm. As people, we do have a proclivity, particularly in this society, to do things. You've got to be active. That's, the, that's why active management will always survive, because it sells hope. And people always want hope. And it plays on the fact that you're being active. How can you do investing and not do anything? Well, you can. It's unlike anything else. I'm trying to write an article with a friend, a colleague in uh, in the UK. Uh, we've got a great title, but we don't have much substance yet, called How Do You Choose a Neurosurgeon? Yeah. And the real thrust of the article is we are increasingly faced uh, with uh, experts, very narrow, more and more specialisation, and there's a good purpose in that, faced with narrow specialist experts being experts, they're usually pretty poor at explaining things. And we've got to make decisions about it. You can become an instant expert on Google, but that doesn't help. And so how do you go about that decision? How do you go about doing that? And how do you go about choosing an investment manager? How do you do how should you do that? How do we do it? And how should you do it? Are there are there any guidelines that will help us make better decisions, more informed decisions that way? Well, what I've found helpful, and I've written about this, and I have to get a Buffett quote, or in this case, actually a Munger quote. Even better. Even better, is to invert the question. So instead of looking for the best fund manager, I look for the worst. Yeah, sure. And look sure. for ways to get rid of them. Sure. And then of the sample that's left, yeah. I then look for the cheapest. Yeah. That seems to um, work pretty yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, the, if you're, a, as I was, a CIO and the consultants say, you know, you're looking for a small cap value manager, let's say, and the consultants do their work and they do use all their analysis to produce five managers. And they can't now, do, on using their techniques, they can't right. distinguish between them. So it's a toss-up. You can't make a better informed decision that way. They're all roughly equal. You can go by cost. Uh, you can go by whether you think you can have a relationship with them, how they're going to deal with you, and that getting to know them might help you there because that's valuable. I guess if you can find out if they've got integrity or not. You can find. You can certainly do that, and the consultants say they do that, but... That's that's a longer term thing, but you do background checks and ask people, and uh, all of those things. They're the decisions we make, and that's how you do investing too. So you've you've written a lot about institutions and how they should invest, and we've covered some of these points now. Uh, one thing you've written in particular about is what smaller institutions should do differently and the kinds of opportunities that they can take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. Please tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that started from, uh, you know, this is an industry driven by fashion. We've got to understand that. Factors and first smart beta, now factors, uh, ETFs, it's fashion conscious. And the people involved in it all follow the fashion because they're so concerned about peer risk and career risk. So if somebody's doing, if the future fund's doing that, we got to do that. If Yale is doing that, we got to do that. The current fashion, and there's some sense to it, not all fashion is useless, although I tend to think most is. Oscar Wilde said, fashion is a thing so ugly we have to change it every six months. <laughs> but the fashion now, based on something, is about scale. A regulator is pushing that, and there's some sense in that that you can, as you get bigger, uh, there, are, there are scale, economies of scale, at least in the admin side there should be, although there's a limit to that, and you wonder whether OzSuper is, whether they've been able to, I hear that they haven't yet squeezed out all the inconsistencies, they've still got legacy issues, and that takes a long time, so there are inefficiencies of doing that, but when you've done it, there are probably uh, scale efficiencies, but in, on the investing side, there are inefficiencies. We know that scale. You know, it's the oldest thing in the book. You do well with with a hundred million, they give you a billion, you screw it up uh, for all the reasons we know about market impact and everything else. So, being large cannot necessarily be the right answer. Now, the bigger question to me is if you take scale, so you go all the way up to the Japanese pension fund at 1.3 trillion, and you start down here with a wealth management of 500 million. Are there sort of points, rough points, where the whole approach should change? And, and it's not just large or small, there might be something more in the middle. Mm -hmm. Certainly when you're small, you're not going to be able to compete on deals like infrastructure deals and things like that. You can't compete with them. That's The big guys can do that. And the big guys have changed, at least in Canada. They now buy entire companies and you know all the stuff that CPP and teachers have been doing, that seems to me to be a natural and highly intelligent thing to do. Yeah. 
a small one here can't do it. Well, they can do it, but they'll play, pay 1% plus That's performance right. so, to be in a fund with yeah. everybody else that gets That's the right. assets that That's right. the big guys don't want. That's right. So, so if they're following the big guys, trying to mimic them, they're in for trouble. So therefore, the question then is, is there anything they should do aside from merge with someone else? And I think there is. They've got to, if they think more like family offices in the US, which are often small, a billion, two billion, maybe five billion, they can do different things. They can manage it differently. They will take different risks, and that makes it difficult. So the the one I mentioned there, one of many, is you. Uh, we know that new managers that start off often do very well for the first five years. Uh, they're prepared to take more risk. And after about five years, their performance drains off. This is just so standard that not only does their performance, the alpha, disappear by and large, but the fraction of it that goes to the client gets even smaller. So to the extent that's true, you should get in early and get out. That's not obviously not as simple as that. But there's the opportunity. You are small. You can't. A new manager who starts up, uh, Oz Super can't go into it. Uh, whereas a tiny fund can. Well, they, they can, can, but it won't make a difference for them. No, they, that's the other thing. They've got to allocate a significant amount to it. It's got to mm. be a material amount. Is there a risk with that? Obviously, there's a huge yeah. risk. That's what the that's what the family offices do in the US, and, they, and here too, and they do that. That's what Maya does in many ways. Yeah. And super funds could do that, and they could be then bill themselves as the truly different super. You want to have a different level of risk? different type of risk, come to us. But that'll never happen while the consultants are there because the consultants don't want to take the business of risk of putting you of into course. somebody that's a new and emerging And the trustees manager. don't want to take that risk. Mm -hmm. So there's the barrier to, until that can change, smaller funds have had it. So... I'd like to see somebody trying to do that. And the opportunity is when you're, when you're out of the way, when you're... Alaska is an interesting case. I do some work with Washington State Investment Board. They've always done very different things. They were the first institutional fund to go into private equity in the early 80s. Uh, they were the, one of the first to say there's no value in active management in the US, index it. Uh, they're one of the first to develop their own real estate business. They've done very well by doing different things. Alaska was the same. Sky and Nevada is the same. You know, there's a commonality there, and that is they're away from the metropolitan centre. If you're away from New York and Chicago and London, you can do different things. It gives you the opportunity. And that's the key. Once you're in Melbourne here, everyone's looking at you. So you'll never do that risk. You've got to be a risk taker. And to do that, get away from the centre. And that, that gives you the opportunity. And most people don't take that. That this this little fund could actually align itself with Ozsuper and say Ozsuper and all the other funds, it's not picking on them, you know, you want more risk, here we are, and it's essentially a balanced fund with a little bit big deal. It's the same thing. Well, here is somebody that's really diversified. It's quite different to anything you've got. You want to take higher risk with a hope of getting higher returns, put a bit of your money in this small one, but we'll limit it and control mm -hmm. it. And there are those opportunities. They, the super funds don't 
want to think that way for all the agency reasons. They're all agency Well, they, they haven't had to think that way because default contributions have seen the money come yeah. their way whether they offered a, a Me Too product sure, or a different sure. product. Sure, and yeah. they've lived through the biggest bull market in equities and bonds since the beginning of the universe. So <laughs> they've, they've had it easy. They really have. But why do we need all these super funds if they're all doing the same thing? God, what a horrible inefficiency that is. But try to get rid of it. All the agency costs. Who's going to give up? We know that a lot of the mergers of super funds, some of them fail, not on grounds of, of efficiency or effectiveness, but because somebody wants a board seat. And we allow that to happen. Anyway, that's... So, moving on to happier news and happier thoughts, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on some of the innovations that we're seeing in finance and investment. I know that you uh, are involved with the team at Clover, mm -hmm. who were on the podcast in an earlier episode. Oh, were they? Harry? Yeah, yeah Harry Answerhill. Oh, Answerhill. Oh, so we, we had a good chat yeah, in their offices. Good. So tell us a bit about what attracted you to the idea of robo-advice and, and what you're doing with Clover? Uh, there I'm sort of the, I guess, investment officer, but Sahil does the day-to-day -day work. So it's a sort of a, sort of a CIO, not a CIO, it's sort of a chair of an investment committee, but it's informal and there's a tiny number of us. Um, I like the idea of robo because most advice, like anything, when you go to get advice from somebody, some large proportion, 80 is always a good figure, 80% of it is absolutely routine. You go to the doctor, the first 80% first 80 of the questions are absolutely routine, could be done by a machine. In fact, we know in medicine that you get a better response that way. Mm -hmm. right? I've, got a, I've got skin cancers all, all over, so I've got one there. And I'm going to go and see the uh, dermatologist, and she's going to say, how long have you had it? And I'm going to say, oh, about a month. And it's been six months. So I'm going to lie. Why? Because I'm embarrassed that I've been such a schmuck that I didn't do anything about it. I'd rather she didn't know that I'm a schmuck. And so I lie. And that's very, very... How long have you had that pain? Oh, you know, a couple of weeks. Bullshit. How long have you had the toothache? Yeah, we, we all do that. Yeah. We're human. Mm -hmm. And the evidence is that if you go in and you have to respond to uh, a bit of software, maybe with a voice on it, I don't know, people are more likely to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. So, But anyway, 80% of it is probably routine. So what are you paying that for that? You know, How old are you? How much money have you got? What's your super? How many kids are? You know, that's important information, but it's totally routine. So let's make that routine, and therefore there's no cost to that. That's, that's number one. And then let's make the investing routine through ETFs, so you're not paying active management fees. And the advantage of all of that is that it keeps the cost down and it allows people with small account balances to actually get some level of, of advice. It's going to be routine advice. That's true. People who've got different things, you're going to have to tell them to go and see someone else. They may need personal advice, but most of it is input. Most of the stuff we do, we're all the same. You know, all this marketing bullshit that you're all special. No, we're not. Pretty much we're all the same. 
We all have similar needs. Yeah, goals. we do. We yeah. do. That, of course, beyond the 80%, we're different. But the large bulk of it, we're all the same. And, you know, this bullshit about millennials, God, I hate that sort of crap. You would find <laughs> as much variation in any human characteristic within that group as you would across groups. Mm-hmm. That's been looked at before. There's massive variation in there. And yet the marketers want you to believe it's all it's all the same. Bullshit. It's all crap, mm-hmm. as most marketing is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the... The, so that's why I was attracted to Robo, with plus the potential that as, as and if it grows and artificial intelligence becomes, and it is already at a high level, but it becomes cheaper, you'll actually be able to do even more. You actually might be able to give really quality advice and personal advice. Maybe. that's it. So talk to us a little bit more about artificial intelligence. What, what do you think is required in terms of time, research, money, for it to get to that point where it's effectively replacing a, a person? Well, first of all, I've got to admit that I've uh, twice before I've been a great believer in AI. Uh, in the late 60s, I thought that's when it started and I thought this is it. And the, not that I was involved in it, but I, was, I used to talk about it a lot and I knew a lot about it at that time. I don't know much now because it's moved huge leaps beyond that. And in the 80s, early 80s, I was actually involved in doing some, trying to to develop a program that would do better than a cardiologist in interpreting ECGs. Uh, Failed. Failed. And that was an interesting experiment. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, that time... What did you learn from failure there? Oh, lots of things. One, One, the limits of of mathematics so the 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 actual job was uh it was a consulting job here's here's what the ecgs look like uh here's what the cardiologists do oh look look at that we'd better give you a shock or there's fibrillation going on there or whatever uh can you do better and then the first naive approach was to try to interpret the graphs. Did you regress one onto the other? Did that you? sort of thing. A yeah. bit more, there was a bit of curvature. That was totally and utterly useless. And looking back, it should have been. But the second stage was to do what was then very quite common in AI. Uh, that was to recognise that experts often... Part of being an expert is that your knowledge and information is tacit and intuitive. It's very deep and intuitive. You, you work, experts work intuitively, not according to formulas. The, the, you know, the, the issue of novices versus experts, the big insight is that experts look at big pictures and see the patterns, and novices, they try to use rules. And that's how you learn, that's fine. You start with rules and then you see how they change. And the experts get to such a point that they really can't explain what they're doing. You know, why the famous one was uh, they had five or so experts in bean pathology. These were the best experts in the world at bean, but they could look at a bean and they'd tell you what was wrong with it, like experts do. And then you'd say, why? Sounds riveting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but but then you'd say why, and they'd go fall into their expertise, and you wouldn't understand a word. Uh, so these early guys in this was at University of Edinburgh. 
gave these experts a whole bunch of beans and then they looked at the output of what the analysis was, the interpretation by the experts. Then they built themselves a bit of a, a program that sifted through that output and inferred from it what the rules of inference were. So it backed out supposed rules of inference that in that sample would have got you from the beans to that. And then they show it to the experts. And the experts say, oh, yeah, that's what I was doing. You know, they recognise that that part, they've never formalised it, but they recognise it. And then they take those things and they go away and they give them another test and they do better than the machine. And then you run the program again and it finds out, oh, there's another rule they're using. And then the machine does better. And that's man-machine interaction it used to be called cybernetics. That's the real opportunity of doing both of those together. So we tried that with cardiologists and didn't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. Failed. What, what, what was the problem there? Sounds like I'd, that would have been a better approach. It would have been. I, I don't think we, and that was, I wasn't the one who wrote the program, but I don't think the programs were, the software was really up to the level we couldn't we couldn't really infer many rules so i think there was a either a problem with the software that wasn't developed well or that the experts weren't uh, weren't sufficiently forthcoming and that is a problem with some particularly in a commercial field like cardiologists maybe they weren't and maybe we didn't know how to interpret it and, you know we were flying blind but that offers some potential doing that and now uh, the next level, so I, I, I was wrong twice, and now I'm a believer in it again. Uh, this time, the thing that attracted me was mainly not that it could beat chess players, because chess, from a computer's point of view, is a pretty simple, dumb yeah. game. So that never impressed me. But when they beat the World Go Master, because I played that many years ago, that is infinitely more complex. And when it can play Jeopardy and win and it can start dealing with intangibles and informals. Now you're getting to real artificial intelligence. And looking at the way it uses big data and other things, it's not far off, I think. One of the things, the, uh, the AI things that I've enjoyed playing around with, because I'm from a psychology background, uh, IBM Watson created yeah. a, a personality test to demonstrate uh, Watson's machine learning capabilities. So you can link up your Twitter feed or, if I had one. Or text that you've written in your yeah. case. Uh, I think it needs about 3,000 words to get a good read on you. So 3,000 words from a variety of different forms of writing, some professional, some personal correspondence. You put that in and it gives you a very accurate um, picture using the five-factor personality model. I was surprised at how well it corresponded with um, some of the more formal testing I'd done in the past during my studies. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It only takes about 30 seconds. It's, it's fun. If you Google Watson yeah. personality test, right, you'll I find will. it. I will. No, I think it's got it's, it's, it's leaps and bounds because of the neural networks and the, the deep learning that it's able to do. That I think in a paper I just wrote, I referred to this, the, the, the world chess champion now, which is Alpha Zero, I think it's called. And it's a deep learning, big data uh, program. And all you give it is the rules of chess. And it plays against itself millions of mm -hmm. times and it learns. And then it can beat the world champion. 
Do you, um, yeah. That's a huge breakthrough. Do you have any of the Elon Musk fears that we're all go- we are going to end up in this dystopian future where we will be fighting with robots for <laughs> control of the planet? Like I, I did read it's, recently that Facebook had uh, two AI programs that had developed their own language and communicating with each other, and they they thought the output was random, and then what they actually figured out was that rather than interacting the way that been programmed to interact these two programs figured out a quicker more efficient way and came up with their own language essentially at which point they pulled the plug <laughs> but do you think we need to be worried about those sorts of oh, things oh i think it's a concern i personally i think it's probably overdone because it's been if you look back in history the whenever a machine is brought in probably when the first wheel was invented there was fear about what was going to happen then and it's a lot of the fear is genuine there the fear about jobs and how people will have an income, uh, that's a serious and genuine problem. The machines taking over, well, maybe they'd do a better job. They, you know, they, they may not... Probably for it. investment advice, at least. Well, I think even if they're programmed well or learn well, they may not attack Iraq. They may not... Or Afghanistan. They may not do things like that. that we humans seem to do all the time. But no, I suppose there's some some risk of that. You know, the Terminator. I love the Terminator movies. <laughs> I'm just waiting. For, anyway. I'm just waiting for somebody to sit to call one of these fund managers or these uh, AI businesses Skynet. Yeah. I'm just waiting for somebody to do. It'll that. It'll be lost. Most, <laughs> you know, that's now twenty odd years ago. Your millennials probably don't haven't seen Termi. In which case, I think it was '84. It came yeah, out, so yeah. I would have been five years old. Well, Too young to watch it in the theatres. It was great stuff. Arnie at his best. Yeah. <laughs> I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> so uh, one question I, I wanted to ask you, and I'm sure our listeners have got a sense of it from the conversation thus far, is you're very well known for speaking your mind. What's the secret of being able to do that and still have... A successful career because it seems to me today that everybody puts a lot of emphasis on remaining employable yeah and that means not always speaking your mind so how, how did you get to this happy place where you can say what you think and still be very employable you suffer for it I'd say first up but there there are there are costs um, I've come close at AMP to being fired and I came close at GMO to being fired for speaking my mind about ESG. Uh, in fact, had Jeremy not been there, I would have been fired. So there are costs involved in it. I, as I said before, I don't have career ambitions. I think that's a big step. That's a big help. I don't really, I don't want to get to the top. I don't want to do that. And therefore that gives me a bit of freedom. But also, I think it's. I had a father who was, spoke his mind. That's probably very important. And I had a f- parents who developed in me, and then by myself, I did a very strong sense of morality of right and wrong, and therefore you speak up about what's wrong, and you should do that, even if you're ignored, and even if there's some cost, you should always do that, and that's. I think that sort of that came from being a child of the Holocaust 
and having uh, relatives who were who were put in gas chambers because they were Jewish, and uh, no one said anything. And that's uh, that's you know evil happens when good people remain silent. And we're not talking about evil, but we're talking about things that are wrong. And they happen when good people remain silent. That's why whistleblowers should be encouraged and rewarded. Actually rewarded for blowing the whistle. In government, in business. Help people to stand up. It's, a, it's what an open democratic society is meant to be. It's meant to be open. So we know everything. We need a royal commission to find out the shit that goes on in the banks. We all knew that, of course. But why not be open about it? And so it's worth doing that. And once you don't, you know, it, it certainly hurt me in, as an academic. I was known for speaking my mind there. Um, and you go to bed at night and your conscience is clear. Are you going to get fired? Yeah, that, that came close at AMP in the early days. And I was prepared then to become a high school teacher. It's all right, I would have enjoyed that. Wouldn't have been paid as much, but I would have enjoyed it. So that didn't worry me. It probably should have, but it didn't. But there, Ron Bird's another one who speaks his mind and also has been punished indirectly for that. Most people are. And yet that's, what, that's why people like... Uh, 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 it's the guy who's uh, Assange and... Norton, uh, uh, Julian Assange, Julian Assange and, uh, and Snowden, Snowden yeah. and Snowden, they're heroes. They're heroes. Were I Prime Minister, I'd invite them back to Australia and give them a medal. They're the heroes of the world who show us what people are doing in government who are meant to represent us. So that value those people. And people who speak their mind say things, often say things that others, many others are crying, thinking about anyway. Mm -hmm. So you need somebody doing that. A bit like Socrates, who yeah. said that uh, Athens was a lazy thoroughbred that needed a gadfly. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your research or work now, are there any things that you're working on that are interesting? The yeah, main thing is uncertainty, trying to better understand the nature of uncertainty and what's uh, not risk but uncertainty and what can you do are there are there insights about how you can make decisions under uncertainty and there are there are various things you can do to improve the way you handle uncertainty right. that that and the other big one is what do you do with extreme events mm -hmm. how do you handle those so those are Plus, just more thinking about uh, behavioural stuff, which is much more interesting to me than the quant stuff. Mm -hmm. so I don't mind you. I, I do read some of the papers, like the one that I've got that looks at uh, the reproducibility of uh, anomalies. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to read right through their technical way of doing it. Mm -hmm. So those are the sorts of things I'm thinking about. Very good. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Professor Jack Gray, it's been a pleasure. Good. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again. Good. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com.
Thank you. 